All right, how's it going, everybody? Welcome back to American History with Professor Cheryl Boswell. So in this podcast, we're going to mainly talk about the uh, French and Indian War and kind of its repercussions leading into the American Revolution. So let's dive in here. So where is this all going to take place? It's known as the Ohio Country. So the Ohio Country offers a lot of potential in the two decades or so prior to the American Revolution. It was very rich in game, even richer with agricultural potential. And so the region of the Ohio River had been kind of a no man's land for decades following the Beaver Wars. And throughout the Iroquois, or sorry, the Iroquois themselves, they really don't really have any interest in occupying the territory, but they've claimed sovereignty over it well into the 1750s by right of conquest. So by then though, the Delaware Indians, Shawnees, Mingos, the other native peoples, they had all built and established villages in this territory. Uh, they may have been looking to the Iroquois, but it was mainly for, you know, advice, not orders. There remained a lot of uncertainty as to who's going to claim ownership and dominion over this Ohio country. So European rivals compounded all of this. By the 1750s, both Britain and France see the lands as being vital to their strategic interests. Pennsylvania traders have been wandering into the territory for years. Their reports draw a lot of interest from land speculators. Wealthy Virginians and Pennsylvanians were envisioning colonies in the Ohio country. Uh, these plans and schemes that, you know, London is very happily encouraging in hopes of weakening New France. And in 1745, the Virginia House of Burgesses, that is their uh, governmental assembly, grants 300,000 acres of land to a newly formed business enterprise known as the Ohio Company. And the French in Quebec were relying on the Ohio lands to be a buffer between their, you know, relatively small settlements and the very populous British ones in the east. So, kind of anxious with all this going on. The French build some new forts and start firming and cementing up their Indian alliances. The British are going to counter in 1754. Virginia's governor, who was a major investor in the Ohio Company, orders 200 militiamen under the then 22-year-old Lieutenant Colonel George Washington, who was another investor, to assert the British interests in Ohio Country. So Washington's militia marches west with the help of several Indians under Tenogerson. He's called the Half King. He is the Iroquois representative for the Ohio country. And Tenogerson, which how it's spelled is T-A-N-A-G-H-R-I-S-S-O-N. He had grown up near the forks of the uh, Ohio River near present-day Pittsburgh and advised the British to build a stronghouse or fort essentially at the key position there and Washington was very intelligent able disciplined experienced inexperienced very badly out of his depth and he soon discovers how little control he has over all the substance circumstances you know even his own expedition so after a devastating encounter along with Tenogerson against the French militia at Fort Duquesne Washington realizes, you know, he has some pretty meager control that's going to spiral out of control 
and out of his hands because Tanagerson and his Indian forces then slaughter the militiamen that had come out of the fort to ask uh, to surrender. And this fort was Fort Necessity. And Britain and France had come to blows in the backcountry before. Indian people were long trying to profit from the imperial rivalry of Europeans, use it to their own ends. But in the Seven Years' War, all the bloodshed in the forests of North America for the first time leads Europe into war rather than circumstances bringing them into it, and they follow it. So Washington's misadventure kind of sets the pattern for the early years of the conflict, you know, years marked by a lot of British defeat and missteps. So the surrender at Fort Necessity only stiffens Britain's resolve to control the Ohio country. London sends two army divisions under General Edward Braddock to get the region from France. France then decides, you know, with to send the equivalent eight divisions to Canada. And General Braddock had kind of sealed his own fate before getting in this area. So ignoring the American advisors that insisted Indian alliances are key to victory, Braddock instead alienates native leaders and refuses to acknowledge any of their land claims. And his divisions push into the Ohio country with less than 10 Indian allies. And in 1755 will be pretty much annihilated by the French and their Indian allies. And this defeat is going to be one of the worst in British military history. And Braddock loses his reputation and dies in battle. It sends some shockwaves through the whole British Empire. It emboldens the resolve of the French and convinces a lot of on-the-fence, you know, wavering Indian people that the French are the ones to support with this. So raiding parties start striking backcountry settlements from New York to Virginia and there's a lot of refugees that will flee east. And Britain's war goes from bad to worse. Most British colonials found it difficult to cooperate among themselves. At the start of the war, representatives from throughout the colonies attended the so-called Albany Congress in the summer of 1754, designed in part to try and convince the Iroquois not to ally with New France. And British fortune kind of goes rebounds a little when the veteran English politician William Pitt, he comes out of retirement to direct the war. And Pitt was a little bit of an odd duck. <laughs> uh, subject to bouts of depression and he is despised by many for being opportunistic and egotistical, but he is buoyed and bolstered up by a very strong sense of destiny, not just his own, but also New England's, that of England. And France seems the biggest obstacle to British destiny, and so he jumps back into the whole political scene with renewed vigor and energy. And Pitt lays out an audacious strategy. So he says, we'll leave the fighting in Europe to the Prussians, who were begging for British aid after the French came to the aid of Austria in the European campaign, but they funded them with just massive infusions of cash instead. And England would just attack France everywhere else in the meantime, in the Caribbean, West Africa, colonies along the Indian Ocean as well. 
and was to especially pit would attack them in North America. He pledged to drive France out of the continent forever. And to do so, he was going to treat the colonials as being partners and equals. And Pitt said, you know, London, not the colonies, are going to bear the cost of the war. And certainly, last but not least, the New English government pledged or acknowledged how important the Indians are to the war effort. So the new officers Pitt sends listen to the colonial Indian agents and go-betweens. They subsidize trade, approve distribution of presents to key leaders. And all of these gestures, you know, they are grand conciliatory appeasement gestures. They're well-timed because the Indian people of Ohio country had increasingly come to question their French alliances. So French authorities often took Indians more seriously than the English did, but they still struggled with cultural differences. And when they would have joint victories, French officers uh, felt obliged by European military protocol to deny their Indian allies the customary war spoils, like captives or stealing, plunder, uh, scalps as well. And so disgruntled native warriors generally took them anyway, often refused to fight for France again, even more to the point by 1757, Britain's navy is unsurpassed by any power in the world. Uh, But it had in place a blockade of the St. Lawrence River that cut off supplies to French Canada. So without arms, ammunition, and metal goods, French authorities were finding it very difficult to maintain their Indian alliances. So the reforms implemented do strengthen the colonies, turns the tide of the war. Most British North Americans were willingly fighting for the empire if they're treated as equals. In July 1758, the British gained control of the St. Lawrence River when the French fortress at Louisbourg falls to the Royal Navy and the British and colonial troops. In August of that year, a force of New Englanders will capture Fort Frontenac and it isolates the French forts already in the Great Lakes and Ohio Valley region. So more Indians seeing the French, uh, you know, having to change tactics from the interior, they switch their allegiances to the English as a result. So the British succeed even more spectacularly in 1759. So in Canada, the Brigadier General James Wolfe gambles on a daring strategy and he will win the fortress city of Quebec from Montcalm. And under the cover of darkness, what happened was uh, the naval squadrons, they uh, transported and landed Wolfe's men beneath the uh, steep bluffs of the city, like on uh, the edge of a river or the waterways. And they then scaled up the sides of the bluffs to a plateau known as the Plains of Abraham. And then the battle breaks out. Five days later, both Wolf and Montcalm are dead, along with 1,400 French soldiers and 600 British and American troops. Quebec had fallen to the British as a result. And a year later, the French surrender of Montreal finally will end the Imperial War in North America, but it's going to continue elsewhere around the world for another two years. What finally ends it is the Treaty of Paris, signed in February 1763. This puts an end to all French claims in North America and confirms British title 
to all French territory east of the Mississippi. Spain had foolishly kind of entered the war on France's side back in 1762, and they will quickly lose Havana to the British warships. And so the Treaty of Paris in 1763, the next year, restores Cuba back to Spain, but at a very high price. They Spain had to cede or give up Florida to Britain. And Spain reluctantly takes on the control of France's vast and very ill-defined territory of Louisiana, all west of the Mississippi, but they only do this to prevent the British from having it. And this territory includes the Port of New Orleans. So in addition to its North America spoils, Britain won several Caribbean islands in the war, as well as even the uh, state of Senegal in West Africa. So the end of the war, Americans assume meant, you know, end of high taxes, access to fertile lands in the Ohio area, and Americans expected to be giving more consideration within the British Empire, which was going to be just as important as all this. And British statesmen were, you know, complaining colonial assemblies had been very, uh, very miserly, very tight-fisted when it came to supplying their armies. British commanders said colonial troops were... Uh, soft or lily-livered, you know, when it comes to combat. There's differing perspectives on the war and differing expectations of the colony's place in the empire that sets this whole, sets the stage for crisis in the post-war generation. So British authorities, they justify the army's continued presence in part by pointing to various alien or different people that the crown now has to administer over. And the army would have to police French colonists in Canada, Spanish in Florida, and most especially dozens of very formidable native peoples west of the Appalachian Mountains. And still kind of recovering from the war, Indian people reacting to the triumphant attitude of Britain and this new westward surge of speculators and colonists with they end up reacting to all this with a religious revival that breaks through and cuts across tribal lines. So Pontiac is a very charismatic Ottawa chief. He embraces the Delaware holy man Neolin, N-E-O-L-A-N. And Neolin has a message of Indian unity and organized attacks against British forts in the summer of 1763. So the uh, Shawnees, the Mingo, Potawatomis, Wyandots, and other Indian peoples all in the Ohio country, working with Pontiac or even independently in some cases, were capturing every British fort west of Detroit by early July of 1763. Backcountry settlements from Virginia to Pennsylvania were coming under attack, and it left hundreds of colonials dead, hundreds more fleeing east. And so determining to assert British rule... There's an enraged man known as Amherst that sends troops to attack Indian forces and native villages. He will also authorize the commander at Fort Pitt to give Indians blankets from the infirmary where several men have been stricken with smallpox. Yeah, biological warfare. Officials in London were blaming this Pontiac's Rebellion on bad leadership. They replaced General Lamphurst. 
was the guy that was in charge of it. Uh, more important, the Crown will issue the Proclamation of 1763, which transforms and changes colonial policy. So, presence and respectful diplomacy were to resume. The Crown would appoint two Indian superintendents, one in South Carolina, the other in New York, to supervise and oversee all good relations. Even more critically, colonial settlement would stop west of the Appalachian Mountains. And there would be a so-called proclamation line that reserved all western lands as being Indian territory. The exceptions to this were Quebec and Florida, which got divided into eastern and western halves for colonials and Indians. And so trying to control and restrict western movement might help ease up some of the Indian fears the British hope and prevent any future conflicts. But, and it seems, you know, sensible and even justified. The proclamation line, you know, may have seemed from the perspective of, you know, Ohio country or London, you know, very much seems just like it's common sense. It makes sense. But most of the British colonists view it as a betrayed by their own government. So they're wondering, you know, why did we fight and sacrifice everything in this war against France if all this territory we helped win just gets set aside for by Indians, you know, for Indians. And there was a group of guys known as the Paxton Boys. These are a number of Scots-Irishmen that called themselves the Paxton Boys because in uh, western Pennsylvania where they were, Indian raids had taken a very especially grim toll there. And in December 1763, they, they ride into a small village of Christian Indians, killed six people, burned the settlement down to the ground. Fourteen other inhabitants flee to the town of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which does give them some protective custody. And leading a mob of the Paxton boys, they force their way into the safe house. They massacre all 14 men, women, and children with their broadswords. And colonists and natives alike were increasingly willing to simplify difference and see all Indians or all whites as these despicable em enemies. So events like this by the Paxton boys don't help matters with everything that's going on. And it would have been trouble enough if the Proclamation of 1763 and Pontiac's Rebellion, you know, were the only post-war disappointments the colonists face. But George Grenville, he's the first Lord of the Treasury. He also confronts, you know, very uh, dire, grim financial consequences of the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War. Britain's national debt doubled in the decade after 1754, adding to this was, you know, the burden of draining the supporting troops in the colonies. And as matters stood, heavy taxes were already triggering protests among some pretty hard-pressed Britons, and Americans, in contrast, were paying comparatively low taxes to the colonial governments and little in trade duties to the empire as a whole. <clears throat> so, Grimville discovered Colonial Customs Service paid out four times more in its salaries to collectors than it actually gathered in duties or in collections. There was also blatant, rampant, outright bribery and tax evasion that allowed merchants to avoid 
the existing uh, taxes or duties on molasses. For molasses, for example, uh, the New England merchants used imported molasses to make rum, for example. And George Grenville reasons, well, if Americans could pay out a little under the table to protect some illegal trade, they would willingly pay a little more to go legitimate. And Parliament agreed. In April of 1764, it passes the Revenue Act, commonly known as the Sugar Act. So the tariff actually lowers the duty on foreign molasses from six to three pence a gallon. This time, however, the tax is going to be very stringently, scrupulously collected. Ships are tightly monitored to make sure they comply. Violators are tried in Admiralty Courts which are far harsher than typical colonial courts. And Parliament approves some other proposals by Grimville, all created to try and improve British finances. In 1764, there's the Currency Act that prohibited the colonies from making their paper money legal tender. This prevented Americans from paying their debts to British traders in currency that had fallen to less than its face value. 1765, there is the Quartering Act. This obligated any colony where troops were stationed to provide suitable accommodations, and it contributed to the cost of keeping British forces in America. And finally, March of 1765, sorry, Parliament will pass the Stamp Act. So, like sugar and molasses, just like under the Sugar Act, those things were taxed, but in addition, the Stamp Act places taxes on legal documents, customs papers, newspapers, almanacs, college diplomas, playing cards, dice, even. Every, every paper thing you can possibly think of is going to get taxed under this. So after November 1st, 1765, all these items had to have a stamp signifying the possessor had paid the tax. Any violators of the Stamp Act would be tried without juries in Admiralty Courts. And the English had been paying a similar tax for nearly a century, so Grenville expected very few objections. And he, little does he understand, you know, the colonial viewpoint, actually. So, like other Britons, colonials in America accepted, you know, a maxim laid down by the English philosopher John Locke, that property guarantees liberty. Property in this view wasn't merely real estate or wealth or material possessions. It's the source of strength for every individual providing the freedom to think and act independently. And it follows from this close connection between property, power, and liberty that no people should be taxed without consenting either personally or through elected representatives. Power to tax is the power to destroy, you know, because you then deprive a person of liberty if they can't pay the tax or a property sorry if they can't pay the tax yet both the sugar act and the stamp act are taxes passed by members of parliament none of whom are elected by colonials so like the english colonials also prized the right of trial by jury as one of their basic constitutional liberties you know that's what the magna carta had set up in part back in 1215 yet both the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act would prosecute offenders in the Admiralty Courts, not in local courts. And it deprives colonials of freedom claimed by all other Englishmen and women. And more often than not, they were tried 
in England, not even in the American colonies. So the concern for protecting individual liberties was only one of the convictions shaping the colony's response to these new policies in Britain. Equally important is the deep suspicion of power itself. You know, it's a preoccupation colonial shared with, you know, a minority of radical English thinkers like Locke, like John Locke. And these radicals were known by a variety of names. Uh, some people called them the country party, the commonwealth men, or the opposition. So they draw their inspiration from the ancient tradition of classical republicanism, which holds that representative government safeguards liberty more reliably than either monarchy or even oligarchy does. So underlying this judgment is the belief that human beings are driven by passion and unquenchable, insatiable ambition. So one person, a monarch, or even a few people, an oligarchy, can't be entrusted with governing because inevitably they become corrupted by power and turn into despots and tyrants. Even in representative governments, the people are obligated to watch those in power at all times. And the price of liberty is to be eternally vigilant. And so the opposition thinkers, they believe that people of England are not watching their rulers closely enough. During the first half of the 18th century, they argue the entire executive branch of England's government, the monarchs and all the ministers have been corrupted by the appetite for power. And proof of this ambition ambition is found in the very oversized bloated state bureaucracy you know it's a massive standing army as well rising taxes and the opposition warned you know that a sinister conspiracy originating in the executive branch of government threatens english liberty and opposition writers were more or less ignored in england but colonial leaders revered them highly highly valued them and the opposition's view of politics confirmed a lot of the colonial anxieties about England, doubts that run deeper after 1763. And Parliament's attempt to tax the colonies and then quartering, you know, the standing army on the frontier, it just totally looks like it's evidence of a corrupt plot to try and enslave the colonies. Britain's attempt to try and raise revenue after 1763 was a disaster of timing, uh, economically and psychologically by then the colonies are in the midst of a recession the boom that was produced in america by government spending during the war collapsed once all those british subsidies were withdrawn after the war and colonial response to the sugar act reflected a lot of these post-war trends so new england merchants led the opposition objecting to the sugar act on economic grounds primarily but with the passage of the Stamp Act and the, the terms of all this imperial debate grows and widens, this new act or law takes money from the pockets of anyone who makes a will, files a deed, trades out of a colonial port, buys a newspaper, consults an almanac, you graduate from college, you want to gamble, playing with dice or playing cards, all of that, everyone, not just the few is what they're saying are affected by this. So the Stamp Act serves notice that Parliament was claiming the authority to tax the colonies directly. And so this unprecedented assertion then provokes an unprecedented development. This is the first display of colonial unity we finally see. During the spring and summer of 1765, American assemblies were 
passing resolutions denying Parliament's authority to tax them. So the right belongs to the colonial assemblies alone, they argue, by the law of nature and by the liberties guaranteed in colonial charters and in the British Constitution, you know, in Magna Carta. Virginia's assembly, known as the House of Burgesses, takes the lead in protesting the Stamp Act. And they were kind of poked into doing this by good old Patrick Henry. At the time, he's only 29 years old, but Patrick Henry had tried his hand at planning in Western Virginia, but he realizes his real talent is demagoguery. You know, he's bl- or speaking in a way. So he is blessed with being a, as eloquent, you know, as an evangelical preacher. He then uses his popularity as being a smooth-talking lawyer to fit himself into a place among the Burgesses. Yet, all that dashing charm of the Southern gentleman and his mind isn't, you know, cluttered by so much education and learning. You know, it's nice to not have too much philosophy crammed down your throat. You know, you get to be a free thinker for yourself. And so he uses all these talents to then get a place in with the Burgesses. And he takes his seat just 10 days before introducing the Virginia Resolves against the Stamp Act. The Burgesses pass Henry's resolutions upholding their exclusive right to tax Virginians. Other assemblies will follow suit. And it affirms that the sole right to tax Americans resides with their elected representatives. In October 1765, delegates from nine colonies will convene in New York, where they prepare a joint statement of the American position and petition the King of Parliament to repeal both the Sugar and Stamp Acts. At the same time, colonial leaders are turning to the press to arouse a popular opposition to the Stamp Act. And disposed by the writings of the English opposition to think of politics in conspiratorial terms, they warned that Grenville and the king's other ministers were plotting to deprive the colonies of their liberties by unlawfully taxing their property. So, where on earth? Sorry, folks, on my computer looking at notes, of course. And, of course, everything wants to be all crazy. So there we go. All right. To, uh, so they're looking at popular opposition. So other assemblies follow suit, right? They turn to the press. And the Stamp Act was just the first step in the sinister plan to enslave Americans, so they're saying. In response, merchants of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, they agreed to stop importing English goods in order to pressure the British traders to lobby for repeal in every colony organizations are going to prop up to ensure that the stamp act if it's not repealed will never be enforced and among the new resistance groups will be the sons of liberty and they consist of traders lawyers artisans with great success they will organize the lower classes at the seaports in opposition to the stamp act sailors dock workers poor artisans apprentices servants they just pour into the streets resembling mobs and 
Previous riots against houses of prostitution, merchants that hoarded goods, supporters of smallpox inoculation had not been spontaneous, uncontrolled outbursts. You know, they were very carefully planned. Crowds chose their targets and their tactics very carefully and usually carried out the communal will with very little personal violence. In every colonial city, the mobs of 1765 will burn the stamp distributors in effigy, which if you don't know what an effigy is, that's where you make like a scarecrow. You make a doll resembling someone and you set it on fire. That's an effigy. (laughs) And they'll insult these people in the streets, trash and burn down, demolish offices, even attack their homes. And one night in 1765, a mob goes further than the Sons of Liberty had planned. They all but level the mansion of Thomas Hutchinson, who is an unpopular lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. He's the brother-in-law of the colony stamp distributor. And the destruction shocks Bostonians, especially the Sons of Liberty, who resisted Britain in the name of protecting private property. And so after this, they take very, they take care to keep crowds under tighter control. But by the 1st of November, the day the Stamp Act takes effect, most of the stamp distributors had resigned. So meanwhile, repeal of the Stamp Act is already underway. Back in England, the man that was kind of coming unintentionally to the relief of America is King George III. And this young king is a good man, industrious, devoted to the empire, but he's also immature, right? Uh, Insecurity makes him, you know, a little irksome at times. He runs through ministers pretty quickly. By the end of 1765, George had replaced Grenville with the new first minister, which will be the Marquis of Rockingham. And Rockingham was very much opposed to Stamp Act from the outset. He secures its repeal in March of 1766. And the Stamp Act controversy demonstrates to colonials how similar in political outlook they are to each other and how different they are from the British in England. Most fundamentally, Americans agree about the meaning of representation. To try and counter colonial objections to the Stamp Act, Grenville and his supporters claim that Americans are virtually represented because each member of parliament stands for the interests of the whole empire, including the colonies. But colonials are like, this whole theory of virtual representation is crap. We're not buying it. Because, you know, living an ocean away, their interests differ significantly from those of the British. They insist on having actual representation, emphasizing elected officials are directly accountable to their constituents. And Americans also agree Parliament has no legitimate right to tax the colonies. Colonials conceded Parliament's right to legislate and to regulate trade for the good of the whole empire. But taxation, in their view, was the free gift of the people through their representatives, who are not sitting in Parliament. Members of Parliament brushed aside all the colonial petitions and resolves. They chucked them aside like they don't matter. You know, they all but ignored all these constitutional arguments. To make their own authority clear, Parliament accompanies repeal of the Stamp Act with the Declaratory Act and asserts it has the power to make laws for the colonies in all cases whatsoever. Declaratory Act really clarifies nothing, 
but you can see that it's on the way to not so good, right? In the summer of 1766, George III again unintentionally gives the colonies what should have been an advantage by changing ministers yet again. The king will replace Rockingham with William Pitt. Good old William Pitt, who enjoyed a lot of favor among the colonials for his leadership during the Seven Years' War and for his opposition to the Stamp Act. He's almost alone among British politicians at this time, but he had definitely grasped and approved the colonists' constitutional objections to taxation. So if the man who believe Americans are the sons, not the bastards of England, you know, if have been well enough to govern, you know, matters between Great Britain and the colonies might have turned out differently. But almost immediately after he takes office, his health collapses and he's unable to really come to the salvation of the colonies. And so the power then passes into the hands of Charles Townshend, the chancellor of the exchequer who just wants to raise more revenue. 1767, Townshend persuades Parliament to tax the lead, paint, paper, glass, and tea that Americans import from Britain. Then he used revenue from those tariffs to pay the salaries of royal officials serving in the colonies. And this is an important change, because previously governors and other officers like customs collectors, judges, they received their salaries from the colonial legislatures. The assemblies lost this leverage when Townshend used the revenues to pay these people directly. And so royal officials depend less now on coming to terms with these American legislators. Finally, in order to ensure more effective enforcement of all these duties on imports, Townshend will create an American Board of Customs Commissioners who appoint a small army of new customs collectors. He's also going to establish three new vice admiralty courts in Boston, New York, and Charleston to bring smugglers to justice that don't follow these new guidelines. So, in Townshend's efforts to try and control the administration of the empire, Americans see new evidence they're not being treated like the English. There's a lot of newspapers that and pamphlets that take up the cry against taxation. John Dickinson, who's a Philadelphia lawyer, writes a letter from a farmer in Pennsylvania where he urges Americans to protest the Townshend duties by consuming fewer imported luxuries from England. All the virtues of hard work, thrift, and home manufacturing can bring about repeal. And as Dickinson is coming to prominence, the Townshend Acts also kind of shape the destiny of another man in the North, good old Samuel Adams. He is a leader in the Massachusetts Assembly and his earlier ventures as a merchant ended in bankruptcy. He had a short stint as a tax collector that leaves all of Boston in the red. Like he's not really a good businessman, (laughs) but he does prove to be a great political organizer and agitator. So his enemies and later his friends claim that Adams had decided on independence for America as early as 1768. And in that year, he persuaded the assembly to send to other colonial legislatures a circular letter condemning the Townshend Acts and calling for a united American resistance. So as guys like John Dickinson and Samuel Adams are whipping up and spurring on public outrage, His group that he helped organize, the Sons of Liberty, again organizes opposition in the streets. So customs officials 
become the targets of popular hatred. Uh, but the customs collectors give as good as they got with this one. So they seize American vessels for violating royal releg regulations, even with flimsy excuses. Uh, with They shake down American merchants for what amounts to protection money. There's a lot of racketeering in the Customs Service that brings tension in Boston to a flashpoint in 1768 after officials seize and condemn the ship the Liberty. It is a sloop belonging to one of the biggest merchants at the time named John Hancock. Name might sound familiar, right? But several thousand Bostonians vent their anger in a night of rioting, seeking out and roughing up customs officials. New Secretary of State for the Colonies named Lord Hillsborough responds to the Liberty Riot by sending two regiments of troops to Boston. In the fall of 1768, the Redcoats parade into town under cover of warships in the harbor. In the months that follow, citizens uh, really don't like when they're being challenged uh, by the British in the streets, right? by armed soldiers. Even more disturbing to Bostonians is the execution of British military justice on the common. You know, British soldiers were whipped savagely for breaking military discipline and desertion was punished by execution. The Liberty Riot and the arrival of all these British troops to Boston pushes the colonial assemblies to coordinate their resistance much more closely. Most legislatures were endorsing the uh, Massachusetts Circular Letter of Protest sent to them by Samuel Adams. They very quickly adopt agreements not to import or to consume British goods. And there's the reluctance of some merchants to revive non-importation in 1767 gives way to more enthusiasm by 1768. By early 1769, agreements like this are in effect throughout all the colonies. And the Stamp Act crisis calls forth the intercolonial cooperation and tactics like non-importation. <coughs> Excuse me, folks. But the protests against the Townshend Acts raise the stakes by creating new institutions to carry forward resistance. Subscribers to these non-importation agreements established committees of inspection to enforce the ban on trade with Britain. And the committees publicly denounce merchants who continue to import. They'll vandalize their warehouses, force them to stand under the gallows, sometimes resorting to tarring and feathering them. But after 1768, the resistance brings a broader range of colonials into the politics of protest. So artisans who recognize that, you know, non-importation would spur on and create domestic manufacturing propping up their business. You know, they begin to organize independent political groups. In a lot of towns, women take an active part in opposing the Townshend duties. And the one of the groups of women will be the Daughters of Liberty. They take to heart John Dickinson's advice. They wear homes, homespun clothing instead of the English finery. They will serve coffee instead of tea. Boycott shops that sell British goods. <coughs> Excuse me, folks. But resistance after 1768 grows broader in another sense. So a lot of the supporters of the colonies felt a new sense of kinship, you know, with freedom fighters all throughout Europe. They read about the work of men like Charles Lucas, an Irish newspaper editor, a member of Irish Parliament, 
John Wilkes, a London journalist and leading politician of the opposition. And both men were saying the King's ministers are corrupting the political life of the British Isles. The work of political rebels, even in distant Poland and Turkey, engages the colonial sympathies too. The fate of Corsica, though, is probably going to be the international cause that is nearest and dearest to the American lovers of liberty. So for years, the tiny island of Corsica off the coast of Italy have been fighting for its independence, first from the Italian state of Genoa and then from France, who bought the island in 1768. And the leader of the Corsican rebellion was Pascal Paoli, or Paoli, sorry, P-A-O-L-I. He hoped that England would rally to defend Corsica's freedom, if only just to keep France from getting the Mediterranean outpost. But British statesmen have no intention of going to war with France over the tiny island of Corsica. And when fr French troops, you know, redirected the rebel army, Pauli then fled to exile in England in 1769. And adding insult to injury, you know, this greatest man on earth, as he was lionized by some, began to hobnob with British nobles. He even accepted a pension of a thousand pounds a year from George III. And so kind of the moral of the sad story is, you know, British corruption pervades not only the empire, but all of Europe. Within a few years, Europeans sympathizing with these notions are going to cross the Atlantic to fight in the American Revolution. But meanwhile, all this going on, situation in Boston is steadily deteriorating and declining. British troops find themselves regularly cursed by citizens and occasionally pelted with stones, dirt, even human excrement. Yeah, good fun times. Gross, I know. British regulars, the troops, they're very unpopular among the laboring classes in Boston because they compete with them for jobs. Off-duty soldiers moonlight as maritime laborers on the docks, and they sell their, service, their services at rates that are cheaper than the wages paid to local officials. By 1769, a lot of fights between British regulars and waterfront workers breaks out frequently, with some 4,000 redcoats enduring daily contact with about 15,000 Bostonians that are very easily provoked by men like Sam Adams. What happens on the night of March 5th, 1770 is inevitable. And for those of you that don't know what event I'm talking about on March 5th, 1770, this is the Boston Massacre, as it has been called. There was a crowd that gathered at the customs house for just to try and heckle the 10 soldiers that were guarding it. The redcoats started panicking and fending off insults and snowballs uh, because these snowballs, a lot of them had rocks in them and they were being pelted just nonstop. It was a pretty violent affair, but they panicked with live fire, hitting 11 rioters and killing five. Nobody would declared, you know, the order to fire, it just happened, you know, and Adams, Samuel Adams, another propagandist, they seize on the incident. They label the bloodshed as the Boston Massacre. They publicize this atrocity all throughout the colonies, and the Boston Gazette, fairly radical for its time, it sets up the account in a very eye-catching black-bordered edition heading with the drawing of five coffins. 
And while Townshend's policies are spurring a lot of resistance in America, the obvious kind of finally dawns on Parliament. They recognize Townshend's duties on imported English goods only discourages sales to colonials and encourages them to manufacture at home. The argument for repeal is overwhelming and it just clears the way for the death of Townshend, the Townshend Act. So Townshend himself dies unexpectedly as well. So in 1770, his successor, Lord North, convinces Parliament to repeal all the Townshend duties except the one on tea. And they allow the tea tax to stand as a source of revenue and a symbol of Parliament's authority. So, repeal of the Townshend duties takes the wind from the sails of a lot of American resistance for more than two years. But the difficulty, the controversy, you know, between England and the colonies was not resolved. Colonials still pay taxes on molasses and tea, taxes to which they had not consented. They're still subject to trial and admiralty courts without juries. They still live with a standing army in their midst. And beneath, you know, all of these fires of protests, you know, is still in the background, you know, Americans' political inequality. Any shift in the wind can just kind of fan that ember into flames and this metaphorical wind does shift and Narragansett Bay 1772 so running aground will be a ship called the Gatsby it's a British naval schooner that was pursuing Rhode Island smugglers they are run aground residents of nearby Providence very quickly celebrate the misfortune of this British schooner by burning it down to the waterline. A lot of outraged British officials send a special commission to look into the matter, intending once and for all to try and bypass the established colonial court system. And so the arrival of the Gatsby Commission reignites all the imperial crisis, and so resistance is now flaring again in America. And American resistance does so through kind of an ingenious mechanism known as the Committees of Correspondence. So establishing all the colonies by their assemblies, the committees draw up statements of American rights and grievances. They distribute the documents within and among the colonies. They seek out responses from towns and counties. And the whole thing is the brainchild of Samuel Adams. See, the committee structure forms a new communications network, one that creates an intercolonial agreement on resistance to British measures. And the strategy succeeds, not only among colonies. So the committee spread the scope of resistance from colonial seaports into rural areas, engaging farmers and country folk in the opposition to Britain. And the committee has had a lot to talk about when Parliament passed the Tea Act in 1773. The law was an effort to try and bail out the bankrupt East India Company. And what they did was they grant the corporation a monopoly on the tree trade with the American colonies. Company can use their own agents to sell their product directly, cutting out middlemen and then offering a lower price than charged by colonial merchants. And the Tea Act would hurt merchants, but it promised to make tea cheaper for ordinary Americans. But a lot of colonials saw the act as being Parliament's attempt to try and trick them into accepting their authority to tax them. 
And so they set out to try and deny the power once and for all. And in the early winter, 1773, popular leaders in Boston called for the tea cargoes to be returned immediately to England. So on the evening of December 16th, thousands of Bostonians, as well as farmers from the countryside, packed into the Old South Meeting House, which was a church at the time. Some members of the audience knew what Sam Adams had already planned for the agenda, and they just awaited their cue. So Adams told the meeting they could do nothing more to save their country. And war whoops start ringing out, and the crowd then spills onto the streets and out to the waterfront, and thus commence the Boston Tea Party. So from this group will emerge 50 men dressed as Indians to try and disguise their identities. It was not good disguises, y'all. But the party boards three vessels docked off of Griffin's Wharf specifically, and they break open casks of tea containing 90,000 pounds of tea overall, which which would brew a drink worth about 10,000 pounds sterling, and they just dump it all into Boston Harbor. So I'm going to leave this segment there, and we'll pick up with the next segment on how the British Empire strikes back after the Boston Tea Party. Stay tuned, y'all. All right, everyone. So in this segment, calling it Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so following the Boston Tea Party, the British Empire will fight back. So the Boston Tea Party proved to British satisfaction that the colonies were definitely aiming at independence. So to try and reassert their authority, Parliament will pass the Coercive Acts, which in the colonies, they're dubbed or nicknamed the Intolerable Acts. So the first of these will come in March of 1774. After hearing of the Tea Party, when Parliament passes the Boston Port Bill, it closes the harbor to all ocean-going traffic in and out until such time as the King, George III, sees fit to reopen it. And George would not see fit until colonials pay the East India Company for their losses, announced by the Parliament. So during the next three months, Parliament approves three other intolerable laws designed to try and punish Massachusetts. Massachusetts Government Act handed over the colony's government to royal officials. Even convening town meetings would require royal permission. The Impartial Administration of Justice Act permits any royal official accused of a crime in Massachusetts to be tried in England or in any other colony. The Quartering Act allows the housing of British troops in uninhabited private homes, outlying buildings, and barns, not only in Massachusetts, but in all the colonies. And many colonists see the Coercive Acts as proof of a plot to try and enslave the colonies. In truth, the taxes and duties, all the laws and regulations of the past decade, were part of a very deliberate design, which was a plan to try and centralize and control the administration of the British Empire. It seems only common sense to British officials because they had not really been able to control them before. So these efforts by the King's ministers and Parliament to try and run the colonies more efficiently and profitably are viewed more and more by Americans as a sinister plot and conspiracy against their liberties. 
So for colonists, study of history confirmed that interpretation, especially reading of histories that were written by the English opposition, that's a big one. So the opposition's favorite historical subject was the downfall of republics, whether those of ancient Greece and Rome or more recent Republican governments in Venice and Denmark. The lesson of their histories was always the same. Power overwhelmed liberty unless the people remain vigilant. And so the pattern has been repeated in America over the previous dozen years. You know, costly wars are waged, oppressive taxes levied to pay for them, standing armies sent to, you know, over wow the citizens, corrupt governors, customs collectors, judges, all appointed to enrich themselves by enforcing the measures. And so everything kind of seems to fit. Everything's adding up. And week after week in the spring of 1774, reports of legislative outrage come across the waters. Shortly after approving the course of acts, Parliament passes the Quebec Act. And the Quebec Act established a permanent government in what had been French Canada. And ominously, it includes no representative assembly. Equally ominous to the Protestant colonists, the Quebec Act officially recognizes the Roman Catholic Church and extends the bounds of the province to include all the land between the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. So suddenly New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia find themselves bordering a British colony whose subjects have no voice in their own government. And so with the passage of the course of acts, many more colonists come to believe not only that ambitious men have been plotting to enslave the colonies, but also that the conspirators included almost all British political leaders. At the same time of the Stamp Act, and again during agitation against the Townshend Acts, most colonists had confined their suspicions just to the King's ministers. By 1774, members of Parliament are also implicated in this conspiracy, and a few radicals are wondering aloud about George III in this plot. And so as alarm deepens in the wake of the coercive acts, one colony after another calls for an intercolonial Congress, like the one that had met during the Stamp Act crisis, to determine the best way to defend their freedom. But many also remain unsettled about where the logic of the action seemed to be taking them, you know, towards this denial that they're any longer English. So by the beginning of September 1774, 55 delegates will meet at the First Continental Congress gathered in Philadelphia. And the news from Massachusetts is very grim. The colony is on the verge of anarchy. It's being reported its inhabitants are resisting enforcement of the Massachusetts Government Act. And in the midst of this atmospheric crisis, the members of Congress also have to take on another measure. So many of the delegates had not traveled outside their own colonies. You know, every colony except Georgia sends representatives. The delegates do encounter a great deal of diversity. They quickly discover, you know, they kind of have the same traits of character, attributes they call civic virtue. And these trials include simplicity and self-reliance, industry and thrift, and above all, an unselfish commitment to the public good. Most members of Congress share a common mistrust of England, uh, associating the mother country with vice, extravagance, and corruption. 
the delegates have some misgivings about uh, those from the other colonies. Massachusetts in particular brings with it a reputation, well-deserved, uh, considering that Samuel Adams is along, for radical action and a willingness to use force to accomplish its ends. And as the delegates settled down to business, their aim or their goal was to reach agreement on three key points. How were they to justify the rights they claim as American colonials? What were the limits of Parliament's power? And what were the proper tactics for resisting the course of acts? Congress quickly agreed on the first point. You know, the delegates affirmed that law of nature, colonial charters, the British Constitution provides all the foundations of American liberties. And the position is what most colonials have been arguing since 1765. But on the two other issues, Congress charred the middle course between demands of radicals and reservations of conservatives. So since the time of the Stamp Act, most colonials had insisted that Parliament has no authority to tax the colonies, but later events demonstrate Parliament could undermine colonial liberties by legislation as well as taxation. So uh, things that fall into this category were the course of acts, the Gatsby Commission, also suspension of the New York legislature. Given all these experiences, the delegates adopted a Declaration of Rights and Grievances on October 14th, 1774, and it asserts the right of the colonies to tax and legislate for themselves. And the Declaration of Rights limited Parliament's power over Americans more strictly than colon colonists had a decade previously. And so by denying Parliament's power to make laws for the colonies, the Continental Congress blocked efforts of the most conservative delegates to try and reach an accommodation with England. Their leading advocate, Joseph Galloway of Pennsylvania, proposed a plan of union with Britain similar to the one set forth by the Albany Congress back in 1754. And so under this plan, there would be a grand council of the colonies that would handle all common concerns with any laws it passed subject to review and veto by Parliament. And so Parliament would have to submit for the grand council's approval any acts it passed affecting America. A majority of delegates judged that Galloway left Parliament too much leeway in legislating for the colonies, and so they rejected his plan. Congress denied Parliament the right to impose taxes or to make laws, uh, but delegates stopped short of declaring that it had no authority whatsoever in the colonies. They did approve Parliament's regulation of trade, but only because of the interdependent economy overall for the empire. Some radical pamphleteers were attacking the king for plotting against American liberties, but Congress acknowledged the continuing allegiance of the colonies to George III. So the delegates called for a return to the situation that existed in the empire before 1763. Parliament regulates trade, the colonies exercise all powers of taxation and legislation then. So on the question of resistance, the Congress satisfied desires of most of the radical delegates by drawing up the Continental Association, which was an agreement to stop all trade with Britain until the coercive acts are repealed. And they agreed their fellow citizens would immediately stop drinking East India Company tea, and that by December 1st, 1774, merchants would no longer import goods of any sort from Britain. And a ban on the export of American produce to Britain and the West Indies would go into effect a year later during September 1775. And the lag was a concession to Southern rice and tobacco planters who wanted to market crops that were already planted. 
So the Continental Association provided for total cessation of trade. Sam Adams and other radicals wanted something bolder. They get some help from Paul Revere, who was a Boston silversmith and had been providing newspapers with engravings showing British abuses. So on September 16th, Revere will gallop into Philadelphia bearing a copy of resolves drawn up by Bostonians and other residents of Suffolk County. The Suffolk resolves, as they are called, that branded the course of acts as being unconstitutional and called for civil disobedience to protest them. Congress endorsed the resolves, as Adams had hoped, but it would not approve any other part of the radicals' agenda, like preparing for war by authorizing proposals to strengthen and arm colonial militias. So the First Continental Congress did steer a middle course, uh, very determined to bring about repeal of the course of acts it holds firm and resisting any revolutionary course of action. If British officials responded to the recommendations and restored the status quo of 1763, then, you know, we might have been able to stop, you know, this war for independence almost indefinitely. But uh, even Congress didn't want to go to the extremes urged by radicals, you know, so they just, but they did draw the colonists further down that independence road. So most colonists did applaud the achievements of the First Continental Congress. They expected the association would bring about a speedy repeal of the course of acts, but fear that the colonies are moving toward a break with Britain leads some others to denounce the doings of Congress. Conservatives are convinced if independence is declared, chaos will ensue. And colonists are going to be fighting over land claims and regional tensions and religious differences, you know, as they had so often done in the past. Without Britain to referee all these disputes, the result would be civil war, followed by anarchy. And the man in America with the least liking for Continental Congress sat in the hottest seat in the colonies, and that was the governor of Massachusetts. General Thomas Gage was watching as the royal authority is just crumbling in Massachusetts and rebellion is spreading to other colonies. In June of 1774, he's desperate. He dissolves the Massachusetts legislature only to see it reform on its own into a provincial congress. And this new body assumes the government of the colony in October and begins arming the militia. Gage then starts to fortify Boston and pleads for more troops only to find the fortifications that they build damaged by saboteurs and his request for reinforcements are just ignored by Britain. So yeah, things are not looking so good. But outside Boston, royal authority is really faring no better. Farmers in western Massachusetts uh, close the county courts by force. They turn out royally appointed justices and establish their own tribunals. Popularly elected committees of inspection charged with enforcing the association take over towns everywhere in Massachusetts, not only restricting trade, but also regulating every aspect of local life. The committees call on townspeople to display civil virtue by renouncing effeminate English luxuries like tea and fine clothing and corrupt leisure activities like dancing and gambling and racing. The committees also assign spies to report on any citizens unfriendly to the resistance and enemies of 
American liberty risked being roundly condemned in public or beaten and pelted with mud by hooting and raucous mobs, right? Not a nice time, not a friendly time, not a peaceful time, as you might say. But throughout the other colonies, a similar process was underway. During the winter and early spring of 1775, some provincial congresses, county conventions, local committees of inspection are emerging as revolutionary governments, replacing royal authority at every level. And as all of this is unfolding before General Gage, he concludes that only force will subdue the colonies. It's going to take more than he has at his command, but reinforcements might be on the way. And in February of 1775, Parliament had approved an address to the king declaring that the colonies are in rebellion. As spring comes to Boston, the city waits. And there was a group of craftsmen and artisans that had been organized as spies and express writers by Paul Revere, known as the Minutemen, right? Among other things. But they watched General Gage and they wait for him to act. On April 14th, word from Lord Lord North finally arrives. Gage is to then seize the leaders of the Provincial Congress, an action that will stop the rebellion, North assumes. Gage knows better than to believe uh, North, but he knows he has to do something. So on the night of April 18th, uh, the outside of Boston's Christ Church will hang two lamps lamps from the steeple. It was a signal the British troops were moving out of Boston and marching toward the arms and ammunition stored by the Provincial Congress in Concord. As the lamps flashed the signal, Revere and a comrade named William Dawes ride out to alert the countryside. The number of lamps was the signal, one if by land, two if by sea, and since there were two, they were then going to invade by sea. But the British were marching by land towards Lexington. When news of the British march reaches Lexington, their Minutemen militia of about 70 farmers muster on the green at the center of the road to Concord. It's around five, four in the morning, but 700 British troops mass on the green. Their commander, Major George, or not George, but John, sorry, Pitcairn, P-I-T-C-A-I-R-N, orders the Lexington militia to disperse. And the townsmen, they're outnumbered. They begin to obey, then the shot rings out. The shot heard round the world, right? Nobody knows it was if it was the British or the Americans that fired first, but this is the shot heard round the world. And then we see war break out. You know, a cheer with a cheer, the British set off for Concord, five miles away, and they leave behind eight Americans dead. They just annihilate the Minimum militia at Lexington and Concord. But by dawn, hundreds of Minutemen from nearby towns are coming into Concord. The British enter at about seven in the morning and they move unopposed toward their target, a house lying across the bridge that spans the Concord River. Three companies of British soldiers search for American guns and ammunitions. Three others posted on the bridge have the misfortune of finding those American arms borne by rebels and being fired upon with deadly accuracy. So by noon, the British are then retreating into Boston. 
And so the narrow road from Concord to Boston's outskirts becomes a a highway of mayhem. It's just complete carnage. Pursuing Americans fire on the column of fleeing redcoats from the cover of fences and forests by the end of April 19th, the British had sustained 273 casualties. The Americans, 95. And this is just the beginning. By the evening of the next day, some 20,000 New England militia had converged on Boston for a very long siege. And so the bloodshed at Lexington Green and Concord's North Bridge committed colonials to a course of rebellion and independence. And that was the conclusion drawn by Thomas Paine, who urged other Americans to join the rebels. Payne himself is hardly an American. He was born in England, apprenticed as a corset maker, actually, and then later was appointed as a tax collector. But his final fate would be, you know, he is midwife to the age of Republican revolutions. He is very inspirational with his rhetoric. Payne comes to Philadelphia late in 1774, set up as a journalist, and makes the American cause his own. Where liberty is, there is my country, he declares. In January 1776, he will write a pamphlet to inform colonists of their identity as a distinct people and their destiny as a nation. Known as common sense and enjoys tremendous popularity and wide circulation, selling 120,000 copies. After Lexington and Concord, Payne writes, as the imperial crisis passed from argument to arms, a new era for politics has struck. A new method of thinking has arisen. That new era of politics for Payne was the age of republicanism. He denounces monarchy as a foolish and dangerous form of government, one that violates the dictates of reason as well as the word of the Bible. By ridicule and remorseless argument, he severed the ties of colonial allegiance to the king. Common sense scorns George III as the royal brute of Britain, who enslaved the chosen people of the new age, the Americans. Payne doesn't stop there. He rejects the idea that colonials were or should want to be English. The colonists occupy a very huge continent, an ocean away from the tiny British Isles, clear proof that nature itself had fashioned and created America for independence. England was, you know, locked in Europe, doomed to that corruption of the old world. America had been discovered anew and become a safe haven and asylum of liberty, were the words he used. Many Americans had liked being English, but being English hadn't worked. And perhaps that's another way of saying, you know, over the course of nearly two centuries, colonial society and politics evolved in such a way that for Americans, an English identity no longer fit. And the radicals in colonial America, they viewed this change in identity in terms of age-old conspiracies that repeated themselves throughout history. First, people of a republic are impoverished by costly wars. The colonists could appreciate that after the Seven Years' War, right? Then the government burdened the people with taxes to pay for those wars, just like the case with the Sugar Act or the Stamp Act or the Townshend duties. And then next, those in power stationed as a standing army in the country, pretending to protect the people, but actually lending military force to their rulers. The rhetoric of the opposition about ministerial conspiracies gave such talk a very fervent quality that, to some modern ears, might seem an exaggeration. 
Take away the rhetoric, however, and the argument makes uncomfortable sense. British administration began its backwoods war with France, intending to limit it to the interior of North America. But the war aims of William Pitt, you know, the leader Americans counted as their friend, grew with every victory, turning the conflict into a world war, driving France out of India, attacking Spain's colonies in the Philippines and Cuba. Peace came only once Britain and the major powers had bankrupted their treasuries. Conspiracy may not have been at the heart of the plan, but wars must be paid for. And so began the effort to regulate and bring order to Britain's ungrateful, in some eyes, colonies. In America, colonists are ungrateful precisely because their political institutions made the rights of free-born Britons more available to ordinary citizens than they were in the nation that had created those liberties. <laughs> Ironically, perhaps most Americans have succeeded too well at becoming English, regarding themselves as political equals entitled, entitled to basic constitutional freedoms. The imperial crisis made clear that despite all that the English and Americans shared, they stand very fundamentally at odds over the distribution of political power. The call to arms at Lexington and Concord made retreat impossible. On that point, Payne was clear. It's the destiny of Americans to be Republicans, not monarchists. It was the destiny of Americans to be independent, not subject to British dominion. It was the destiny of Americans to be American, not English. And that, according to Thomas Paine, was common sense. So that kind of sets the stage for the American Revolution. I hope you guys have enjoyed my podcast so far. Feel free to email me at cboswell at wc.edu for any questions you might have about this podcast. So stick around for more to come with American history or on American history, sorry, with Professor Cheryl Boswell. (laughs) Peace out, guys.